So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series that we began last week looking together at the book of Daniel. Uh, The book of Daniel is a series of apocalyptic visions and these thrilling stories of Daniel and his friends who are Jewish youth who are in exile. And so it's this beautiful story of of all that they went through and these visions that Daniel received. Now, the the book of Daniel is oftentimes treated and and studied for, for... people's curiosity regarding end times events. And so they speculate from Daniel's prophecies about what is going to happen at the end of the world. But listen, I want you to see this morning and in the weeks ahead that this book was not primarily given to us so that we might speculate about the future. Daniel is written for us so that we might know how to live faithfully here and now in the present. And so Daniel actually gives us guidance on how to live our lives in a world that oftentimes is at odds with the values of God and his kingdom. Now, of course, there are two or three basic postures that we talked about last week that Christians take to the surrounding culture and world. We live in a world that is at odds with the values of God. And so how do we live in this kind of world? And one posture that the church has taken is the posture of retreat. And so this is where Christians kind of withdraw into a little Christian bubble, a little Christian ghetto, and they have their uh, Christian fellowship and their Christian music and their Christian movies and their Christian hairdresser and their Christian everything. Christian is kind of this adjective that's used to describe all of the stuff in our little subculture. On the other hand, the opposite of retreat is accommodation. And very often, Christians accommodate to the norms and the values of the surrounding culture. So that when it comes to how we spend our time and our money, how we entertain ourselves, how we use our vacations, how we use technology, how we objectify those of the opposite sex, how we speak about people who have different political opinions than us, oftentimes we simply accommodate to the broader culture and the church ends up mirroring those around them. But Daniel teaches us a different way. Rather than retreat or accommodation, Daniel models what it looks like to live as a faithful presence of God within a culture that is at odds with his values and his ways. Daniel shows us what it looks like to neither retreat nor accommodate. On the one hand, Daniel has not retreated from the broader Babylonian culture. He can't. He lives and works in the Babylonian royal court. He has gone to the Babylonian schools. He knows Babylonian literature backwards and forwards. Daniel is immersed in Babylonian culture. And yet, Daniel has not accommodated. He knows who he is. He knows the story that defines him. It is the story of God. And so there are some places that he will not go, some foods he will not eat, stuff he will not watch, things he will not entertain in his imagination. And so Daniel has drawn a line. He knows who he is. He is both faithful in, he is both present in the surrounding culture, and yet he is faithful to God. And Daniel teaches us how to live in this sort of way. And this morning, what I want you to see, what I want to talk to you about is how this plays out for Daniel in his work life. So I want us to look together from chapter two about how this plays out for Daniel in his work life. Now, before we kind of dive into this, I just want to make a couple observations about the broader section that we're studying. So uh, we are beginning chapter two this morning where we are, um, and, and what I want you to see is that 
Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7 are written in a different language than the rest of the book. In fact, it's written in a different language than the rest of the Bible. Does anybody know what language the Old Testament was written in, class? Hebrew. But these chapters of Daniel are written in Aramaic, interestingly. And these chapters actually hang together as a whole. And they do so in a very interesting way. Daniel chapter 2 mirrors the content of Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 2, he speaks of four metals and a stone. And in chapter 7, four beasts and the son of man. And yet chapter 2 and 7 both carry the same theme about four kingdoms of man that will ultimately be finally replaced by the kingdom of God. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 are both stories of deliverance. Chapter 3, deliverance from the fiery furnace, and chapter 6, deliverance from the lion's den. And then chapter 4 and 5 both deal with God confronting a king, but with different outcomes. In chapter 4, God confronts King Nebuchadnezzar, and he repents. In chapter 5, God confronts Belshazzar, and he is judged. And so these chapters all hang together. Now, oftentimes, chapter 2 is looked at primarily in terms of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar is given of a statue composed of four metals. And a lot of attention is given to that. But this morning, I don't want us to primarily be looking at the vision of Nebuchadnezzar about his dream. What I want to look at this morning with you is the drama that surrounds the giving of this dream, the drama in the royal court, which was Daniel's place of employment. And I want us to study this chapter and look at it through the lens of what does it look like for a Christian to engage in, Christi- in, in his vocation or her vocation in the workplace in a way that honors God and reflects the values of God's kingdom. Now, I want to spend some time talking about this with you all, primarily because I think for a lot of us, if you're anything like me, when I first became a Christian, I had a false dichotomy, a framework that I developed in my mind that distorted my understanding of work and school and things like this. And my dichotomy that I developed in my mind went something like this. For me, there was a sacred part of the world, and then there was a secular part of the world. In the sacred world that I inhabited, there was the Bible, there was prayer, there was fellowship and evangelism. And for me, as a 16, 17-year-old who had met Jesus and went transformed by Jesus, I was very, very enthusiastic about Bible and prayer and fellowship and evangelism. I was all into that. My problem was is I couldn't make sense of the rest of life. I didn't know how school and work and my recreation, I loved surfing. I didn't know how all that fit in with God and his kingdom. For me, those things were at best neutral and at worst, they were bad and they should be avoided. And so what I did was I sought to bring value to the secular by connecting it to the sacred. And I did so like this. When I would go to school, I would bring my Bible. I would, uh, we had prayer meetings at school. I would try to meet with my friends for fellowship. And I would try to evangelize people in my classes. And in bringing these sacred aspects into my secular life, I sought to bring value to it. The other thing I sought to do, or uh, you know, I began to do actually as a uh, teenager working at a surf shop, is I started to, to tithe and I started to use some of the income that I developed from my secular life in order to fund sacred events. And in so doing, I thought, well, there's the value in the sacred or in the secular. I could bring my Bible prayer fellowship in, or I could send my resources out and to fund the work of God. 
but I didn't see much value in, and in the secular in and of itself. But I have come to see that this dichotomy is false because it pretends that God is the author of the sacred, but not also the secular. God is not simply the Lord of our religious life. God is the Lord of all of life. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence that Jesus, who is sovereign over all, does not look at and say, mine. He is the Lord over all of life. And so as followers of Jesus, we must ask, what does it look like to follow Jesus in every sphere of life? And so the sphere of life that I want us to learn from Daniel about is the sphere of work. What does it look like to follow Jesus in and through our work? And we learn at least three things from Daniel about how faith relates to his work. And the first thing that I want you to observe that we learn from Daniel is that Daniel, number one, was excellent at his work. Daniel was excellent at his work. The text actually points this out for us. Look at what it says in Daniel chapter one. So tail end of the book or chapter one of Daniel Verse 18, it says this. At the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, speaking of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them. And listen, it says, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the Jewish names. Therefore, they stood before the king. And then look what it says in verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdoms. Now, what was it that was of such note to the king of Babylon about these young men? Well, it wasn't their moral character, though no doubt they had high moral character, nor was it their religious devotion. At one point, as you see in the book of Daniel, it's their religious devotion that's going to get them in trouble with the king of Babylon. What he finds most impressive about these youth is that they had mastered their subjects, that they were excellent at their craft, that they had learned the ways of Babylon and the literature of Babylon, and they had become experts. They had mastered Babylonian history and myth and philosophy, Babylonian dream theory interpretation, Babylonian astrology arts, better than the Babylonians had themselves. And it was this that impressed the king. Now listen. Whoops. Don't lose my notes. Listen, one of, the, one of the ways in which we can stand out among our peers as followers of Jesus in the midst of a culture that oftentimes is at odds with God is by the quality of work that we give ourselves to. I was talking to a guy this last week who spent some time working in an art institute and he said that he was talking with his students who were Christians in the art institute and he asked them kind of about using their art in order to communicate some of the truth of the gospel and the truth of who God is. And he said that, they, that one of the artists said this to him. He said, if you are not a good artist, people don't care what you think. 
And of course, it's also true that if you are not an honest, hardworking realtor, or a winsome, compelling teacher, or a thoughtful, detailed, caring nurse, or barista, or stable, steady brain surgeon, or precise mechanic, people will not care what you think. You know, um, I don't know how many of you guys have seen this at the bottom of uh, in and out uh, French fry container. They have a Bible verse. Did you know that? It's one of the Proverbs. Now, some of you said, no, I don't, because you, you care too much about those French fries. Those French fries are too good, right? Now, listen, when I go to In-N-Out, I did not go to In-N-Out in order to learn the Bible. I go to In-N-Out when I want a hamburger and French fries. And when I go to order French fries, I don't want, you know, those big steak cut fries that are in a frozen package and they throw them in the oil and it comes out and the, it's like partially lukewarm inside. Aren't those just the worst? Way too much potato. And I don't, I don't really want any French fry that previously in its life was in a package and in a freezer. What I want, what you want, what the world wants, what the world needs are potatoes that are freshly cut in that little machine and then put in that oil and then brought out when they're perfectly golden brown and then sprinkled, no, doused with salt. That's what you want. And when I get a French fry container, I'm not looking for the Bible verse, I'm looking for the French fries, but maybe if I love those French fries, I might go, wow, who are these people anyway? Dorothy Sayers, in a brilliant essay on work that she gave in the middle of the 20th century, said this. She was talking about kind of the, the, the church and its instruction that it gives to people about work. She said this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this that the very first demand that his religion makes on him is that he should make good tables. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare say, came out of the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. <laughs> and so first, we are, what we learn from Daniel is that even in the midst of, of Babylon, even in the midst of a culture that was at odds, even in the midst of, of cultural byproducts and literature and language, they still poured themselves into it and they mastered it. You know, they say that those who are, um, one, one of the areas where Christians have made real headway in kind of the academic world in the last two decades is in the arena of philosophy. And one of the reasons for that is those who are believers who have gone into the field of philosophy have mastered their fields. They've gone to the best universities. They come to know their field better than their peers do. And so they begin to have a voice among their peers because they have mastered their subject. They have become experts in their field, which is, of course, what the New Testament calls us all to do. You know, at one point, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, look, Whatever you do, whether it be in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, when you work, he says, work heartily, not for men, but for the Lord. And so we are to pour ourselves out doing good and excellent work. And this is the first thing we learn from Daniel. 
But the second thing that we learned from Daniel is that not only was he excellent at his work, but Daniel took a unique take on his work. He had a unique take on his work. Now look back at, let's kind of walk through this story now. Look at uh, what it says in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. And you thought you had a hostile work environment. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts from me and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time, and they said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans said to the king, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all of the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And so now there is a crisis in the royal court. Everyone's life is under threat. All of the advisors are under the sentence of death. And here Daniel steps up. Look at what it says in verse 13. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought to kill Daniel and his companions. And then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel first, he questions the authorities. He says, look, there is something off in the office. We need to raise some serious questions about the policies in this place. You're going to put us all to death because we can't tell you a dream? He says, I'll make known to you the dream and its interpretation. It's interesting, as you study the text, what you discover is at this point, Daniel didn't know the dream or the interpretation. He takes a risk. He says, I'll tell you. And then look what he does next, verse 17. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and his companions. And he told them to beg mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery. 
so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and now have made known to me what we asked of you. For you made known to us the king's matter. And therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went in and said, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. And then... Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king its interpretation. And the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me that I, the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men or enchanters or magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed, thoughts came of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery is not, has, has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any of the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now stop there. What line of work was Daniel in? Well, as you study the text, what you realize is that Daniel was an advisor to the king. He was like one of the chief advisors in the royal court. But what kind of advice was, were, was, was the king looking for from these advisors? Well, he wasn't looking primarily for military advice or for economic advice. He had those kind of advisors. Daniel was schooled along with the Chaldeans and in the language, the literature, and the practices and the skills of the Chaldeans. Why? Well, because the Chaldeans were those who practiced divination and astrology. They would sometimes use the stars to tell the future. Sometimes they would actually study the liver of animals to tell the future. I understand it's quite effective. But this is dicey work for a young Jewish boy to get engaged in. In fact, the Old Testament forbid Israel from engaging in any kind of sorcery or magic or divinization or anything like this. And yet this was the world of work that Daniel was placed in. And interestingly, rather than retreating and saying, look, I can't engage in this work or accommodating and just doing what the rest of the people in the court were doing, which as it turns out, were kind of pulling uh, you know, the wool over the king's eyes. You know, tell us the dream and we'll make up some interpretation for you, king. 
The king finally got wise to them and was like, no, you tell me the dream if you're so wise, if your divinization arts are working for you. Daniel doesn't go along with the deceptive practices. Instead, what he does is he takes this role and yet he changes the received script that the, that the Chaldeans normally followed. And instead of looking to the stars or the gods or the liver, he turns to the God of Israel to interpret the dream. And listen, what Daniel does in the court of Nebuchadnezzar is instructive for us in whatever field of work you may operate in. Many years ago, I was reading a book by a philosopher at Yale University, Nicholas Volterstorff, and it was all about kind of this conversation of faith and work. And he, he made this statement in this book that I have never forgotten. I've gone back to it. I mean, I read this probably a dozen years ago. But he said this, and I think it's striking, and it's very fitting to what Daniel does in our text. He says, one serves God and humanity in one's daily occupation, but one does not serve God and humanity by going into business and then just playing the received role of businessmen, nor by going into medicine and playing the received role of physician, nor by going into the academy and then just playing the received role of the academic. These roles are religiously fallen, not fallen through and through, but nonetheless fallen. To serve God faithfully and to serve humanity effectively, one has to critique the received role and do what one can to alter the script. But you say, look, if I'm going to sell real estate, I've got I've to compete with the other people who are deceiving the people who they're trying to sell to. I've got to, if I'm going to practice law in this day and age, you know, I've got to kind of drum up a case and lead on the client so that they keep, you know, funding the billable hours. You know, I, I've got to, you know, if, I, if I'm going to, you know, get the job, the construction job, I have to promise a date that I know full well that I can never hit by. You know, if I, if I, you know, there's, there's no way I can, I can be a teacher in this kind of environment and retain my sanity and not be mean or short with my kids or cynical. There's a received role we often have when it comes to our vocations. And so we must do what we can to alter the script so that it fits with the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is preeminently about justice and honesty and righteousness and truth and sacrificial self-giving love for the good of others. Like Daniel, we can neither retreat from the world around us nor accommodate to us, but we have to have our own the, the, the narrative of scripture, beginning with God as creator, humanity as broken, God as the great redeemer who acts in human history through the great events of the death and resurrection of Jesus and who is coming again in the future. This dramatic story needs to shape and form how we live and how we operate in the nitty gritty details of our everyday life. You know, we are called to love God and we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
but we are not called to vaguely and generally love our neighbors. We are called to concretely and specifically and in the particulars of life to love our neighbor and how we paint their house and how we fix their teeth and how we teach their children. Like we need to engage in our vocations in ways that reflect the love of God in this world and the values of his kingdom. And this is what Daniel is teaching us. So number one, Daniel is teaching us to work with excellence. Secondly, he's teaching us to have a unique kingdom-shaped lens through which we view our work. But finally, we learn from Daniel that we also need to live for something bigger than our work. Now, the story continues with this great dream, so let's just go. Verse 31, Daniel says, here's the dream. King, I got it. I know the dream. God revealed it to me. Let me just tell you, king, and you tell me whether or not this resonates with you. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, and all together were broken in pieces, and all became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we'll tell you the interpretation. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all. King, you are the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, now you're talking. <laughs> but another kingdom inferior to yours shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they shall mix with one another, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, you know, this big statue of all of these precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, iron, they all stand upon a flimsy foundation. And one day that statue is going to be crushed. In those days, the kings, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. 
nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. But as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure." Now, there's a lot here, but here's one thing I don't want you to miss. Ultimately, what this vision is about, the main message of this vision, of this dream, is that the kingdoms of man and all that they have to offer, no matter how impressive, positions of prominence, of wealth, of affluence, of status, of prestige and privilege, no matter what it is that the kingdoms of man have to offer, Ultimately, they are short-lived and temporarily, and ultimately what will come is the eternal kingdom of God that will be eternal, and it will have no end. Now, after Daniel receives this vision, look at what Nebuchadnezzar does. Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request to the king, that, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province. And Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel, after revealing this mystery, is given this high place of prominence. He's got position, privilege, he's got money, he's got comfort. But Daniel ultimately, as the story goes on, gives all of it up. And his life goes under threat because he was devoted to something bigger than the comforts and the privilege and the status and anything that the kingdoms of man could give him. He was ultimately devoted to the kingdom of God. What about you? What about me? Ultimately, if what drives your work and your efforts, whether it be your paid vocations that you have, or whether it be your work, which is every bit as much work as, as a stay-at-home or homeschooling mom, or maybe a retired you know, person who is caring for your adult children's children. If what is driving your work is an anxiety to be accepted, or to be impressive, or to be loved, or simply to get more money so that you can have more stuff, so that you can have more security and more retirement or more vacations and more comfort, if that's ultimately what is driving you, if what you want is position and prestige, what you come to learn is that all of that stuff is fleeting and it is not eternal. I remember uh, several years ago watching a... Uh, 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 this surf film about all these different Christian surfers, and it was telling their, their different stories. And there was an interview with one professional surfer whose name was Joey Baran. And they called him in professional surfing the California kid. And he was very prominent in the 80s. 
And if you're from California, you were proud of Joey Baran because he went on and won the Pipeline Masters, which was the most prestigious event on, you know, in, in the professional surfing world. And he was interviewed a couple years later after that event. And I can remember, I remember watching this as a 15-year-old and just being struck. He said, I remember, he says, um, he said, I had always dreamed of winning the Pipeline Masters. And he said, finally, he says, I, I surfed in the pipe and I won it. And he says, after the pipe, he says, you know, he says, the crowds were cheering and, and they handed me this trophy. He says, but, you know, a few minutes later, he said, you had to give it back because you actually couldn't keep the Pipeline Trophy. And then he said, this rain squall hit the beach in Hawaii. And he says, if you know anything about a rain squall in Hawaii, he says, people bail the beach fast. And he says, within like 15, 20 minutes, he says, the crowds were gone, the trophy was gone. And he said, that feeling that he had in that moment was gone. And then he said, all is vain, all is insecure without Jesus. And for you know that, those of you who have worked hard, maybe on your bodies to work out, it is a losing game, isn't it? Like you get to a point, you know, you're working out, you're, it seems like you, you just go two, three weeks with that, and all of a sudden your body goes back to where it was before. Or your skills, or, you know, you're, you're in a vocation, a profession that gives you so much meaning, and then you get an injury and you, you actually lose what you had. And then all of us, of course, die. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> but 2,000 years ago, a stone cut without hands entered into human history in the person of Jesus. And he came announcing a kingdom that could never be taken through death, that could never be taken through old age, or through retirement, or through no longer being important anymore in what you were doing in your vocation or whatever, he came announcing a kingdom that was eternal and that was secure and that was lasting and that would ultimately come into this world not by any human efforts, but by the work of the God of heaven. And the God who revealed mysteries to Daniel revealed himself to us in Jesus. And ultimately, that revelation came to its fullest disclosure on the cross where the very heart of God was opened up to us. And we, said, we saw that at the heart of the universe was self-sacrificing, self-giving love. And this is the kingdom principle that should infuse all of our life and all of our work, this principle of self-giving love, driving us to do our best, driving us to reimagine our profession, all for the sake of others and the glory of God. And one day... This kingdom that was inaugurated by this stone will one day grow and become a mountain and fill the entire earth. And on that day, there will be no more death or tears or crying, for the former things are passed away. And he who is sitting on the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. And that is very, very good news. Let's pray. Father, we come to you 
and we confess that we are an anxious, oftentimes pleasure-seeking, sometimes fearful, insecure people. And what drives our work are so many false selves. But we ask, God, that the vision of your kingdom would break into our hearts and lives, that it would grow in our imagination, even as that little stone grew into a mountain and filled the whole earth. God, make us into a people whose whole lives reflect your kingdom and your values and your cross and the hope that you have given us in the resurrection. We ask that you would do this work among us by your spirit, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.